Hey, thanks once again for coming out tonight. We will be taking up a, an offering for Pastor Shane after the, at, the, at the break at about 7 o'clock. So I want to encourage you just to prepare your hearts for that. But without further ado, why don't we put our hands together and welcome Pastor Shane Willard. All right. We're going to have some fun tonight. So good to be back with you. Here's what's going to happen tonight. I'm going to teach. Uh, I'm going to break it tonight into two sessions. And so um, we'll, have a, we'll have a session now. And then we'll have about a 15-minute break. And then we'll come back. Um, and, and it'll be two totally separate topics. Um, I, I would only ask you that if you do not intend on buying anything at the table back there, um, that's fine. Um, but if you do intend, if you're thinking before I leave tonight, I'm going to buy something, if you would do so at the break, right? Because what that'll do is that'll um, free up the incredibly kind volunteers that are here to help so that they're not here later than necessary, right? So we're going to do unto others as we would have them do unto us, for that is the fulfillment of Scripture. We don't want to be simply right about the Bible. We want to fulfill Scripture which is to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. So um, let's, let's talk. I want to I have a um, very practical session. Um, it's a, it'd be far less um, intellectual um, for, the, for the first session. Um, I, w- I want to be very, very practical. I want to review what we talked about last night. We have anytime you look at Scripture, you want to look at the literal, the meaning, and the eventual nature of it. And so last night we talked about the kingdom of God, and we talked about how if you can see it, it's not the kingdom. Not, that's not it. it can, what you're seeing can be a result of the kingdom, but the kingdom is actually established through fertile ground in our hearts, that our job as leaders is to cultivate ground, atmosphere, environments that is conducive to a seed continually growing. Jesus said that, that, that the, the kingdom of God is like a, a mustard seed in someone's heart. And, and so if the kingdom of God, and then he describes it as something that's kind of annoying, actually, because if, if, unless you believe you've already arrived, then as you journey by saying small yeses, as you journey, um, the kingdom being established in you is going to make you uncomfortable at times, right? Like, like if you haven't been uncomfortable, if God, if your journey with God hasn't made you uncomfortable at all in the last year, I would say that we're not paying attention or we're, we're, or we're resisting environments that make us uncomfortable. And, and this, is, this is a challenge all pastors have. Pastors, if they're not careful, can simply be paid people who are paid to stand on stages and tell people what they already believe, right? Because if sermons can be evaluated in the amount of time it took to deliver it by simply do I agree or disagree. If a pastor has to live in fear of delivering a message because somebody might be uncomfortable with it and they might get people riled up and leave the church, then no one's growing, right? Because that, and that's just, that's just absurd. Great sermons are not meant to be agreed with nor disagreed with. Great sermons are meant to be wrestled with. And so in, 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 in the process of becoming uncomfortable so we can grow... It might put us in a position where we have to have difficult conversations. We're, we're, we're in processing what we're talking about. We might have something disagreeable. And so um, I put this talk together um, th- with, with a couple different resources and, and helps. And I'm leaning on my psychology background a bit on how to have difficult conversations. And what, what, I, what I mean is, is, is for us to be a kingdom kind of people, there's times where we have to sit across the table from somebody and process something that both of us are uncomfortable with. That both of us are sort of like, wait a minute, wait a minute, what's happening inside of me? And so um, I, I want, I, I want to, to talk about that um, in a way that is very, very... You're going to walk out of here with some tools to have conversations that, that you know before you sit down this is going to be confrontational. 
You know before you sit down, this might be rubbing someone the wrong way. So, so let's, let's start with this with the literal, with the biblical mandate. So if you could bring that, that first slide up, right? So here are biblical mandates, right? That these, are, these are things that we are challenged and we are called to be. Uh, first is that in our conversations, we should do all things without grumbling or disputes. That's Philippians chapter 2, verse 14, right? Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Which I think we should start right there and give that its due meditation. How have we done with that? How seriously have we taken that call of God to say, wait a minute, Christianity is a group of people committed to not complaining or arguing amongst themselves. <laughs> like, if, if, if that was the only book of the New Testament that survived... <laughs> How would we have done if Christianity had to be known as being the group of people who don't complain and don't argue amongst themselves? How are we doing with that? I, um, uh, the, the, the second one is true. Never fight over disputable matters. That's Romans 14. Romans 14, Paul says, followers of Christ do not argue over disputable things. And then he calls all things disputable. Right? The, the principle is, don't argue. Right? He says, unless it's Jesus is the Christ, he was crucified, the resurrection is true. Just whatever faith you've come to on anything else, keep it between yourself and God. That's Romans 14, 23. The literal Greek there is shut up. <laughs> the idea is, is, is that actually when the world sees us in conversation, the Christ that holds us all together should be glorified more than we need to be right about anything. Right? Right? Uh, last February, so, so 15 months ago, I made a decision, and I'm proud to say that I stuck to it. Oh, I'm happy to say I stuck to it. I made a decision last February to fast for 365 days from arguing about the Bible. And I made it. <laughs> I did. It was the best decision I've made for my everyday life in a long, long time. And I did it because I got convicted by Philippians 2 and Romans 14. I got moved that I was a sinner. I'm being as authentic and as real as I can be. I was wrong. And here's the thing. I'm not given to arguing. I'm not. In 16 years, I've had four people take me on. Four. That's not that much, 16 years. But what does happen to me a lot is people ask me to solve their arguments. So it sounds like this. Hey, Shane, I say this. He says that. What say you? You know? Like, Shane, sit us down and pass your righteous judgment upon us. And, and I got to be honest. I do have to be honest. It's flattering. It is. You think I'm smart enough to solve your argument? There's something about that that strokes the ego. It, it is. But the, but the Bible has a word for that. Sin. It's wrong. It was wrong. I'm under a mandate to not engage in arguments about things like that. And I did. As the judge of it, but I did. And I realized how much energy it was taking me. And, and I got very convicted. And I made that decision. So now, now if that's the case, all I, if that ever happens, all I do is I say, is Jesus the Christ he was crucified and the resurrection is true? Yes. Is Jesus the Christ he was crucified and the resurrection is true? Yes. Then I am conscientiously opposed to engaging in your toxic conversation. 
would you please graciously allow me not to participate in this? Because based on Philippians chapter 2 and Romans 14, I am truly conscientiously opposed to engaging in your, in your argument. I'm going to leave this with you, and I hope that the two of you at some point see the irony in arguing about a book that literally tells us don't argue about it. It saved me so much energy in 365 days, I made the decision again. So I'm three months into that decision again. And, and, and an argument, an argument is a conversation where either side starts with their conclusion. That's what an argument is, right? So, so, so two people discussing something to, to learn together, that's not an argument. That's healthy. That's a discussion. But if either side starts with their conclusion, that's an argument. And here's the thing, right? I have never in my life been clever enough to shift someone who started with their conclusion. So why engage in fruitless activity, right? So we are mandated to do all things without grumbling or disputing. We are mandated to do all things without fighting over disputable matter. That's Romans 14. We're also mandated to, as far as it depends on us, live at peace with others. That's a biblical mandate. That if it's within our power to be peaceable, then we should be peaceable. That's also in Romans 14. And then really probably most convicting, we're under, the, we're under a biblical mandate that Jesus said peacemakers are the ones who are the children of God. Third line in, first sermon, he said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they're the sons of God. And unless you think that's isolated, 34 verses later in the same sermon, he says, don't just love your friends, bless your enemies. Pray for those who despitefully use you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Two verses after that, it says... Be holy as your father is holy. The context of be holy as your father is holy is not don't smoke, don't drink. The context of be holy as God is holy is be willing to treat others not as they deserve, but as they're worth. If someone acts with hostility to you, you act with peace toward them because that's what God did for the world. That's the context of that scripture. Now, that's the literal. All things without grumbling or disputing. All things without fighting over disputable matters. As far as it depends on us, live at peace with each other, and that peacemakers are actually the children of God. Which, based on that criteria, if we had to stand in front of Jesus today, would he notice us as a child of God? If the world looked at how we speak to one another, would they go, you know what, right, wrong, or indifferent, those are children of God right there. That's how children of God treat one another. Because here's the thing. If the world sees us in conversation, if the outside world saw us interacting with one another, may the Christ that holds us all together be glorified more than we need to be right about anything, right? Because here's the thing. The rightest person in this room about God is still only one one-hundredth of one percent right, right? And so it does no good to sit around arguing about the little bit we know. What's far more healthy is to admit all of us have so far to go that we need to run things by each other. We need to have discussions. We need to have learning environments. We need to have, we need to have our ground tilled so that that mustard seed can grow. Now, with that as the literal and the meaning, let's talk about the eventual nature. So, so how can we do this? Let, let me give you some very practical ways to sit down over a cup of coffee with something that might be a bit of a difficult conversation, right? You can apply this to your marriage, if you want. You can apply this to a friendship. You can apply this to coworkers. You could apply this. I could actually do this talk in corporate in a corporate place about how to interact with, with each other. And even if they said, don't use the Bible at all, it's still truth is truth, right? Like, honestly, I just used the Bible, but if there's only one God, 
that anything that's true belongs to God, no matter what banner you put it under, right? So, so let, let's look at this. Next slide. So here's some guidelines. First is to check your heart first. So before you enter into that conversation, check your heart first. So let, let me give you a couple questions to ask here. Like, what is my motive entering the conversation? Because here's the thing, like, if, if, don't lie to yourself. Like, if, if you can't be honest with yourself, that's a whole nother problem. Like, before you go to the coffee shop to have the conversation, ask, Why, what, what am I looking to get out of this? Like, clearly define that in yourself. Like, am I in this conversation to understand or to be understood? And neither's wrong. There's a time and place for both those. But if you walk into that conversation not knowing what the goal is and what your motive is, you can't help but wonder why the conversation goes awry, right? Am I, am I in this conversation? What, what is my goal? What's my motive? I'm going to understand them and then establish that before you go. Or I'm going so they understand me. But at least it's established before you sit down. It's not like going everywhere. Am I in this conversation to connect or to coerce? Which one? And once again, there's actually a time for both. This isn't a matter of right or wrong. This is a matter of what's the purpose. Am I going to go sit down and connect? Or is my job to coerce? Maybe let's say it another way. Next slide. Here's some possible motivations. There's the motivation to connect, to understand, to listen, to discover. I think before we have a conversation of journey, we have to, we have to, we have to uh, solve the, the false dichotomy between these two statements. There's a difference between I don't want to be wrong and I don't want to miss out. Which one are we trying to do? Like sitting down to decide who's right or who's wrong, boring, boring versus an attitude of discovery, like, man, I have never considered what you said, what, you've, what you're saying before. Tell me more about that, because right or wrong, I'm not sure, but I do know I don't want to miss out. I know that if you've, I'm assuming you know something that I don't know, and I would love to at least have the opportunity to think about that, because I surely don't want to miss out. I don't want to miss out. No way. There's a difference. I don't want to be wrong shuts conversations down. I don't want to miss out, creates infinite possibilities. This starts with an internal assumption that I am wrong, and, and, and let me, let me say, or I'm not completely right, and it seeks to explore the opposing view. Here's some more possible motivations. Next slide. Secure, confirmed, validated, right. So in my heart, I want them to see that I'm right. At least admit it. I, or I need to feel validated. Okay, or at least admit that it's not wrong. That's, that, that, this, this isn't a matter of right or wrong. It's about being honest about what we're trying to accomplish before we sit down. Because there's a time and place for all of these. But consider whether we should set expectations by clearly stating our motive, even if it's only to ourselves. Before you sit down to have the conversation, if you're clear about this, it's going to make the conversation far less anxious. Because you have a clear goal in mind. Now, next slide. Let's talk about it this way. So, so there's 13 principles that I just, I, th this, this kind of talk goes like a bird shot. It just goes like this. And, you know, pick up two or three or four or one. Like some of these points you're going to go, that doesn't apply to me. That's okay. Like, but it's applying to somebody else. So, so let's say it this way. One, don't make truth an inflexible idol to which we make everyone else bow. 
right? Because when we say, I'm for the truth, we all mean I'm for what I think truth is, right? And so we got to be careful with that, right? Because, because if we think, if, if, we, if we become so arrogant that we think we're so, um, so connected to God that, that we're, we're, we're the same, right? So, so if that's the case, like, I'm so connected with the heart of God that my thoughts are his thoughts. Then, then in that case, when we use the word God, we're just talking about ourselves with a giant megaphone. We're just using God as an exclamation point on our thought, our moral preference. Like, like I'm not, a, like, like, the idea is, if I'm against something, then God must be against it. So if you're for it, you're not against me, you're against God. So argue with God. And so we use God as an exclamation point for our idea, right? The idea is, the, the, and, and honestly, I, I know where I'm at. I know where, I, I, I know where we are. We're all, we're all for the move of God in this church, right? We're all for it. We're all for a move of the Spirit. We are. We're all for the prophetic. But let's just be honest. There's no statement in the known world that has caused more pain to pastors than God told me. Right? God just laid it on my heart. I just know this was a God thing. Well, once somebody invokes G-O-D over something, what, where do you go from there? Right? Because what they mean is, is, is they're talking about God... But they're just, they're really, they're saying God, but what they mean is themselves, but just a giant version. They're talking about themselves in all caps. They're using God as an exclamation point. And some of it just gets silly, you know. God told me to buy that chair. What? Can't you just say you wanted the chair? It's okay. I wanted the chair. That's okay. It's actually okay. You don't have to say, it was a God thing. God spoke to me and told me to buy the chair. What? Like all the stuff going on in the world, he's concerned about where your butt's sitting. What, what, are you, what are you talking about, right? Because once we make truth an idol, everybody has to bow to that. And it shuts conversations down. The, the amount of times we quit listening to people. Somebody, this, this happened recently. Somebody told me the other day, and they thought I would like this. They said, shame. We were listening to somebody. And about nine minutes into their sermon, which is awfully specific, about nine minutes into their sermon, they said something we disagreed with, so we cut it off. I'll never listen to them again. What? So, so you, you listen to somebody who said one thing you disagree with, and you just throw everything else? They, what, are you nine? Right? Like, what are you, like, you have nowhere to grow? Like, if, 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 if somebody says something you haven't considered, it can't be right? Come on. I mean, I, I, was sitting, I was sitting with somebody um, a few months ago who, who gave me a thought about the parable of the prodigal son that I had never considered in my life. And I still don't know if it's right or wrong. And he didn't know if it was right or wrong. He was wrestling with it. But because of our basic attitude, we were able to discuss it together. And I'm telling you, right, wrong, or indifferent, we're better people today than we were before we talked about it. Right? So one, we can't, make, we can't make truth an inflexible idol, which we make everyone else bow. Two, we have to leave our ego at the door. I, I, I have a friend of mine that um, pastors a church, and, 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 and I love this one thing they do, right? I like a lot of what they do, but there's this one thing that's so special. I've just never seen anywhere else. In their life groups, in their discipleship groups, they have uncomfortable conversations, right? And here's what they do. They actually have a name for it. They call it suspended space. I love this. Here's what they do. 
your concept of God, whatever you think truth or God or what the Bible says, whatever it is, before you walk in the door, there's a space over the door. It's symbolic, right? It's not literal, right? There's a space over the door that you're meant to suspend those thoughts. And you know that when you leave, you can pick up what you used to be. So it's not dangerous, right? You are more than welcome to leave here tonight having not changed one ounce. It's fine. But you leave that suspended, you put your, your thoughts in suspended space, and then you engage in conversation with no fear of judgment, no fear of shaming. You hear people out. People are free to brainstorm, even if the idea is dumb. It's all on the table, right? But we wrestle with those things, and then we, we get different perspectives. And then when we leave, we can pick up what we used to be, and those new thoughts might just change us one half of one degree. But one half of one degree shift over five years makes you a completely different person. And that is beautiful growth. That is beautiful. But that requires us to suspend Space. Let's say it this way. Make the number one priority to learn. If you want to get the most out of a difficult conversation before you enter into it, if your number one priority is to learn, you'll always feel like you won. But if your number one priority is to make them agree with you, you're going to be disappointed most of the time. Most of the time. Let, let's, let, let's, let's say it this way. Next slide. Closure is not the goal. Not every conversation or argument has to be won. Right? Actually, most arguments aren't one. It is a very rare occasion that someone starts with their conclusion and gets shifted. Very rare. Why? Because when you start with your conclusion, that's what you find. That's what you see everywhere. Like, I, 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 this was a literal conversation I had with somebody. He said to me, now he started with his conclusion, and this is before my commitment not to argue, Okay. He said to me, Shane, I don't care what you say. You have to say the sinner's prayer to be saved. You mean the prayer we made up in 1830 to help people connect with God? What about people who were born in 1820? What about people who died in 1829, right? But anyway, silly. So I just said, what about Zacchaeus? He was up a tree. He gave half of what he had to the poor. And Jesus called him saved. And this guy said nicely, but he said, well, he must have prayed the sinner's prayer then. Well, once you, because once you start with your conclusion, that's what you see everywhere. So closure can't be the goal. I've never, it's so rare, in fact, I don't think I've ever seen it in my personal life. I'm sure it happens, but it's very rare. Let's say it this way. Persuasion to our view of things is not the most likely outcome of each conversation. So why would we make that the primary objective? If the primary objective is to learn and to grow, that's different. But if the primary objective is persuading to our view, we're just, we're just setting ourselves up to be disappointed a lot. Let's say it this way, number six. Instead of being disappointed most of the time with the outcome, what if we aim for a mutual exchange of ideas? I found this to be very helpful. When I'm sitting with some, I, I had a great conversation today with Dave. Now, because Dave and I have had a 14-year relationship, we don't have to set all these bounds. Like, when I have a conversation with Dave, my goal is to learn. And, I, and his goal is to, we're not sitting there dissecting all of our ideas for right or wrong. We're just, we're just exchanging, hey, what have you read recently? How did it move you? How did it shift you? How, how, what are you still wrestling with about that? And we get to share, and, and it's, a, it's a lovely sort of mutually edifying, um, I love that kind of thing, right? If we aim for a mutual exchange of ideas, that's just better. Let's say it this way. Don't pre-establish yourself as the authority. 
right? So, so if, you're, if you're sitting down at a potentially difficult conversation, you're like, listen, before we start, I'm smarter than you, better than you, prettier than you. So wherever this goes, I'll hear you out, but ultimately I'm in charge. Well, th- well hang on. Setting ourselves up as the pre-established authority will be condescending in adult-to-adult communication. It will sound like parent-child. And here's the thing. Parent-child communication, there's a place for that. If they're your child and they're eight, you need parent-child communication. But if you set yourself up as a pre-established authority in an an adult-to-adult situation, it sounds condescending. And it feels like contempt, actually. And so it's, it's, whether you're right or wrong, it's ineffective. And if our goal is to be effective, that's a whole other thing. Let, let's say it this way. Next slide. So here's some condescending examples. Fact machine gun, you know. Or, or let me guide you on this because you just don't get it. At least condescending things. Like as a Bible teacher, I have to be very careful that I don't, I try, and I haven't been perfect on this. I've messed up on this before. But I have to be very careful where I'm like, well, if you only understood culture, you'd get this. Boy, that's condescending. A much better way to say it is, you know what? In my studies, I found something in their culture that helps us all understand something that none of us understood before. Well, that's better, right? And we've all been sitting with somebody. Have you, well, let, me, let me give you an example. Have you ever been sitting across from someone and halfway through what you were saying, you, they sat forward and you could tell they couldn't wait for you to shut up so they, they've already thought of their four points, Right? And how many of you just love it when someone does that to you? Man, I just love that. No, no, we hate it when people do that to us. When people are treating us with respect is when you could tell they're truly engaged, fully listening to us, and before they, re- they respond, they're going to weigh everything we said. So the fact machine gun is very condescending. If, if the idea that if I haven't considered it, you shouldn't have either. Let, let's say it this way. Next slide. Number eight, reject the false dichotomy that people who disagree with us are either evil or ignorant. It's a false dichotomy. It's not true. The idea that somebody doesn't see it our way, we can scapegoat the whole group as evil or at best ignorant. Well, that's not going to get us anywhere. To pretend that, to pretend that they, the, the ambiguous them, the ambiguous other, to pretend that the other has nothing to teach us, well, come on. Listen, Christian or not Christian, so? As if a non-Christian doesn't have anything to teach us. Are you kidding me? If there's only one God, then all truth belongs to God. I find Christians hilarious with some of this stuff. Like, I promise you, there's a certain percentage of Christians that if I had to have brain surgery, they'd be going, is your brain surgeon a Christian? (laughs) Is my brain surgeon a Christian wouldn't even be in the first 25 questions I would ask. I want to know, are they the best brain surgeon? How many times have you done this procedure? How confident are you before you cut my head open? That's what I want to know. Are they a Christian? As if that makes them a better brain surgeon. What are you talking about? No, 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 no. Even if they're not like us, they have something to teach us. Let's say it this way. Stick with ideas. No personal attacks. That that person sitting across from you is made in the image of God. Full of the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of the risen Christ is at work in them because the Spirit of the risen Christ is filling everything in every way and is at work in all of us. And they have... So, so if there's something to be attacked, it's an idea. Never the person. Never the person. The idea might be dumb, but that person's not dumb. Uh-uh. Actually, we're forbidden from calling people idiots or fools. By Jesus. That's red letter stuff. 
Actually, Jesus said, if you're given to calling people fools, you're, in, you're endangering your life of hell, which is heavy duty language, right? Let's say it this way. 10, reasonable people can disagree due to bias, experience, personal story, and globalizing specific incidents. You have to consider all of this. For a, woman who's had, who's, for a woman who's had a husband leave her with four kids for another woman, it is reasonable for her in moments to globalize that and think all men are pigs. So if a woman says all men are pigs, you can attack that idea by going, no, they're not. Or you could sit back and go, wait a minute, hang on. There must be something in your story for why you think that. And then you could challenge the idea of globalizing the particular, but you can't do that until you hear them out. There's biases, there's experiences, there's, there's, there's understanding, there's what people were always taught when they, since they were kids. Okay, next slide. We need to allow others to be on their journey at their pace. Our job is not to tell them what to believe. Our job is to, go, is to cultivate the ground by which they continue to say yes. The small yeses. Christianity is not about getting all the right ideas in our head. Nor is it about the no. I think this might be as good time as any for me to bring this up, right? Because I totally identify with this. And I have, a, I have, a, I have about a 45-minute teaching on this that I'm not going to go into. But just to mention the idea. There's this massively confronting story in Jesus' life. Where a rich man asked Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Anybody remember what Jesus tells him? <laughs> well, actually, that's the second thing he says, which is still confronting. The guy says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, keep the commands. <laughs> is anybody confronted by that? What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus Christ says, keep the commands. Is Jesus allowed to say that? Can you inherit eternal life by keeping the commands? And remember what the rich man says? The rich man says, is that it? I haven't struggled with that since I was a kid. Like I've been keeping the commands since I was little. Surely it can't be that. And Jesus says, so you've kept the commands since you were little? Yes. And then what does he say? Oh, well, one thing you lack. Sell what you have and give it to the poor. And eternal life can be yours. Is anybody confronted by that? I was massively confronted by it for a couple reasons. One, can you inherit eternal life by keeping the commands? And if you can't, why would Jesus tell this poor man? That? Is, is Jesus playing games? And then past that, can you inherit eternal life by giving what you have to the poor? And if not, why would Jesus tell this man that who's honestly seeking? Is Jesus playing games? And why are we so confronted by that? Well, it's because of what we talked about last night. There's doctrine, which is important. But what's more important is your imagination of how that doctrine works. Right? So here's the problem. When I say eternal life, Western people immediately think of what? Heaven. And so when, when, when the guy says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Western people go, what do I need to do to go to heaven? And then Jesus goes, keep the commands, and our head comes off. Right? But the issue is a fundamental problem with how we define eternal life. For us, we picture eternal life as going somewhere when we die. 
Not first century Jews. First century Jews defined eternal life this way. Eternal life is the spiritual power that existed before the foundation of the world and created it. And it was present in the resurrected Christ. And it's still at work today. It was that power of God that was before time. And it will continue after me into eternity. But it's always spoken of in the present tense. In other words, let me put it in today's English. He says, how can I touch that spiritual life, that oneness with God here, now, today? How can I touch that? And Jesus says, keep the commands. And he says, no, it can't be. I've done that. And Jesus said, oh, you've done that. Oh, then, then give what you have to the poor. And in other words, and I th- this is so important. All of our life with God starts with a yes to God. I say yes. God woos me, I say yes. But then that immediately leads to a no. So my yes is immediately followed by, now that I'm a Christian, what must I abstain from? Right? So what must I say no to? Keep the commands, right? And that's a good question. Like, okay, the commands. Don't kill each other. Really good idea to embrace the best life. Don't honor your life over somebody else's. Yes. Don't sleep with other people's spouses. Good plan. Don't go into each other's homes and steal. Yes. Carry yourself with honesty. Yes, but here's the problem, and here's where I totally identify with the rich guy. If Christianity is entirely about what we abstain from, it gets very boring pretty quickly, right? Because for those of us in this room, I would bet that almost none of us just barely squeaked through this week not killing somebody, right? That's not your story. Man, I'm so glad another Saturday I haven't murdered somebody. That's not our story, right? And and if that's your story, keep going, right? For most of us in this room, our story is not, man, whew, glad I made it through this week without sleeping with someone else's spouse, right? No, it's not our story, right? So if, if the best God kind of life, if that divinely connected life is found in simply the no, then it gets boring pretty quick. Let me illustrate what I mean. If an atheist came in here tonight, and I mean a good-hearted one, not an anti- Like, I'm talking about truly seeking. And they said, listen, all I've known is atheism, but I'm seeking out what Christianity might bring to my world to enhance my life. Would you be willing to talk to me about that? Would you be willing to grab a cup of coffee and let's talk about what Christianity might bring to my life to make it better? Wouldn't we have that? Most of us would have that conversation with that guy, right? So you sit down with him and he says, please, I'm open. I'm open. Tell me, what makes Christianity different than atheism? And if I go, if I make it all about the nose, if I go, well, as Christians, we don't kill each other. And he goes, yeah, atheists don't do that either. Uh, what are you ta- we, we don't struggle with that, right? If I go, well, okay, okay, we, we don't sleep with each other's spouses. Yeah, yeah, actually, in general, we don't either. We, 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 probably, we probably sleep with each other's spouses about the same rate you guys do. So, I, like, I, you know, uh, yeah, no, I, yeah. Oh, 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 we don't steal from one another. And he goes, yeah, yeah, I actually, we, we don't either. If Christianity is entirely about the no's, even though the no's are important, then it's not compelling, right? Like I saw a Christian debating Penn Jillette, who's an atheist, and this guy lost, he lost. 
and, 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 and the Christian got flustered. And he said, Pen, if there's no God, what keeps you from raping and murdering everyone you want? And Pen went, Nothing. I have raped and murdered every person I want. That number just happens to be zero. And if you need God to keep you from raping and murdering people, you are a psychopath. Right? <laughs> that all of our walk with God starts with a yes. That then naturally leads to a no. What must I abstain from? But then at some point, we have to enter into a more profound yes, which is what are we entering into for our world? Oh, oh, you've kept the commands? So you've mastered the no's? Yep, then give what you have to the poor. Start taking your moments with God and making sure that you're affecting your community with love and compassion and doing for others who can't do for themselves and you will find the best kind of life there. Because to Jesus, God is not someone we love. God is someone we find in the act of love itself. That by loving others, that is where we find the deepest sense of the presence of God. And so, and so Christianity can't be compelling around the no's, although the no's are important. Christianity is its most compelling in what we actually do for each other. Let, let, let's say it this way. Don't hold others to our personal standard, approach, or pursuit of the truth. Our job is to cultivate ground. Is it reasonable that if they have different experience, different backgrounds, different bias, and different thoughts on globalizing particular things, that God might have to meet them at a different place than he met you? Right? And so we need to honor that. Oh, number 13, don't make truth an idol to which we force people to bow. That was so important, I made it first and last. Now, let's get real practical and real specific. Here's five tools you can employ in conversation that actually makes it better. Next slide. One, the tool would be to rephrase. Rephrase. To utilize active listening to demonstrate and confirm to them that you've understood their point of view. So, so it's, and we love it when people do this to us. It, the example of that would be, so I just want to make sure before we go any further, I want to make sure I fully understand what you said and then repeat it back to them. People love that. And you love that. It's a very effective thing. The opposite would be, I'm going to dive right in, interrupt you, and correct you with my four-point thought that I thought about while you were talking and not listening to you. Right? No, no. No, to rephrase requires us to actively listen. And it's a great tool. No, no, number two. Speak for yourself. Don't rhetorically gang up on someone by using generalized language. Like everyone knows this. All of us have been talking and we think you're an idiot, right? Well, no, 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 no like, like just speak for yourself. Like if you're in a one-on-one -on -one conversation and someone says, all of us agree, the question is, is who is it? Have you all been all talking about this? You're rhetorically ganging up on me. And that's unsafe, and it actually shuts the conversation down. To, to, no, speak for yourself. Like, like here, here's an example. Here's a, I feel that getting married young is the best way to do life. So somebody came, this is within this year, somebody came up to me and says, everyone knows getting married young is the best way to live. Of course, I'm 43. They didn't realize how that could possibly be well, man, I'm sure I, I, my life sort of sucks, I guess. I, you, know, I, you know, it's like, yeah. And, and, and I had to resist the urge to go, yeah, you know, I get to do what I want to do when I want to do it. I don't have to run it by anybody. I don't have to worry about leaving someone out when I do what I want to do when I want to do it. And most importantly, no one is spending my money other than me. <laughs> my life sucks so bad. 
you know. But I didn't. I just went, all right. Because he started with his conclusion. Like to say, to say, I feel this, that's fine. But to say everyone knows this, you're rhetorically ganging up on somebody. So one, rephrase. Two, speak for yourself. Three, step back. Find value outside of your belief framework and community identity. If all of it ceased to exist, you still would. See, that's the problem. So if, if, if you present an idea that makes someone uncomfortable, and they go, I'm going to have to think about that. That's okay. But if they want to do bodily harm because you've made them uncomfortable, then their faith is a coping mechanism. And when you threaten the framework, you actually threaten the whole thing. And that's a problem. That's a problem. Like, here's an example. In my framework, we haven't considered that. Thanks for giving us something new to consider. The opposite would be you're attacking my entire community with that idea. Like, let me, this is just a quick history lesson, okay? That should inspire us. If everything we've ever built to celebrate God got burnt to the ground tomorrow, God would still be God. Right? Like, like, Christians irritate me with how small their view of God is, particularly around elections. Right? Like, there's fixing to be an election in Australia. And Christians are panicking. Like, oh, God. Oh, no. Oh, Lord. What if the other party gets in? What is Jesus going to do? You know? They're taking the, they took the plaque of the Lord's Prayer out of Parliament. Oh, my God. It's like, if the Lord's Prayer isn't on someone's heart, having it on a plaque, it's going to make zero difference. What are you talking about? And like, okay, quick history of God here. The God we serve overcame the Egyptian Empire, the Babylonian Empire, the Assyrian Empire, the Roman Empire, the Dark Ages. I think they can handle the Labor Party. Like, right, right? It's like, 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 like Jesus is in heaven going, oh, no, you know? Like God's, God's holding his head going, oh, me, what are we going to do? Oh, my God, labor's in, right? Like God's up in heaven going, but we overcame Sardis. What are you talking about? Corinth, Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, Tiglath-Pileser, Nero, Caligula, and you're worried about Donald Trump? What is wrong with you? <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar went into the Holy of Holies, stole the furniture, and didn't die. Took all the priests and made them slaves to the, to the temple of Ishtar at the Kabar River. And God is still God. And that's the whole point of the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel found the presence of God in the front yard of the temple of Ishtar when his tradition told him it could only happen in Jerusalem. <laughs> it's amazing when we find God in the most unexpected places. It's almost like God is God even when our frameworks are gone. It's going to be okay. Right? Let's say it this way. Next one. No belittling words. That's obvious. If the goal is connection or persuasion, belittling the other will be ineffective. So if your goal is to connect, belittling them is not going to work. If your goal is to persuade, belittling them is not going to work. Using phrases like, God, are you an idiot? Everyone knows this. Are you really that stupid? Things like, it's just ineffective. It's ineffective. Like, you might be able to say, please help me understand this. I'm just not following you. That's okay. But to belittle them ineffective. Let's say it one more way. Next slide. Frame ideas in the form of questions. Create an atmosphere of exploration by making non-static questions instead of static statements. Like, like, tell me, how do you see the positives and negatives, the pros and cons of this? Tell me your view. 
verses. Pay attention to me while I do my monologue on this. Wait a minute, no, no, hang on. Pros and cons, non-static questions instead of static statements. See, if we're going to cultivate ground so that that seed can grow, we got to be able to have quality conversations that might make people uncomfortable. we got to be willing to be uncomfortable ourselves. we got to be willing to suspend things and listen to them. We need to learn to rephrase, to step back, to not rhetorically gang up on anybody, no belittling words, and to make statements in non-static questions instead of static statements. And what we'll find if we can do that, we'll have quality conversations that cultivate ground and seed instead of telling people what to believe. See, telling people what to believe is never going to work. There's no scenario that that empowers them. Because if you tell them what to believe and it works, they don't gain confidence in themselves or God. They gain confidence in your advice. If you tell them what to believe and it doesn't work, then they don't take responsibility themselves. They'll blame you. What's more important is that we create ground of exploration. And to do that, we got to have skills and having difficult conversations. So I hope you enjoyed that first session. I think, I, I think that's it's my best effort at putting some thoughts and some words around how we can have quality conversations that helps us grow. So at this point, um, I'm going to hand this back over to Dave. He's going to give you instructions. We're going to take about a 15-minute break and then come back. And then I have a quick thought uh, for the second session, okay? Um, so you guys welcome Pastor Dave. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Shane. Brilliant. And uh, just reminded me of one of the uh, values that we hold as a church is uh, the discipline to listen. And that listening is one of the first responses of love, just to give somebody your ear. You don't have to argue or anything, but um, having the discipline to listen. And everyone's got a story. And uh, that, was just, that was just fantastic, Shane. Really appreciated that. Uh, what we want to do is take up an offering for Shane. He's come here uh, with no expectation. We just want to bless him because we love him and uh, invest into his ministry and into his life. And so there's a couple of ways that you can give. We have uh, some bags that are going to come around in about half a second, half a minute. And you can put cash in there if you like or a check. If you've got a check, please make it out to Bay City Church. The other way you can do it is Nicola at the back there has got an FPOS machine she's holding up. You can give it that way as well. Or you can go online, push pay. There's online over here. Uh, but however you want to bless him, just ask the Lord and so into his life. And don't forget there's the uh, resource library back there, so you can also go and purchase something there, and we'll be back in about 10 minutes. Thank you very much.